Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast series on impact, talking with entrepreneurs and organizational leaders who contribute to building a more cooperative and positive future. I'm Ursula York, the host of this series. I'm a mentor to business people who want to have a positive effect on the world around them, building strong businesses by creating value for their clients, team members, and the larger world. I am so passionate about sharing with you the stories of entrepreneurs and leaders who have impact, their inspiring and energizing role models. I hope you use what you learn here to be inspired about what you can do in your business and beyond. For ongoing inspiration and support to get clear on your impact and put it into action, enter your name and email at workalchemy.com. Today's guest in this podcast series on impact is Indrani Garadia. Indrani is a philanthropist and advocate for women's health and empowerment. She's the founder of Indrani's Light Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to ending gender-based violence and empowering women around the world with the tools to live healthy and meaningful lives. Indrani is a tireless advocate. I've seen this on Facebook. We're friends on Facebook, and she is a tireless advocate for girls and women leading empowerment trainings in several countries around the world. She's partnered with the United Way in South Asia and the Caribbean to bring health, strength, and wellness to women in need, and is also a board member of Every Woman Everywhere and Think Equal. In 2013, Andrani joined forces with the Global Health Organization, PSI, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to transform the lives of girls and women and lift them out of poverty. In partnership with PSI, Indrani's Light Foundation launched programs to eradicate gender-based violence in the United States, India, and her home country of Trinidad in 2014. As author, speaker, and certified life coach, Indrani has delivered keynote addresses at conferences and leads workshops around the world. So welcome, Indrani. So delighted to have you here on the podcast. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) My pleasure. So tell us about the work that you are doing right now. What is it that drew you to this work? It's so impactful, which is, as you know, the topic of the, of the podcast. It's, and it's global. So it's, uh, it's a really powerful thing that you're doing. Can you tell us how you, you moved into this work? Yes. And, um, you know, the work that I'm doing now, Ursula, is very different than the work I thought I would be doing when I decided to try to make an impact on violence against women. I decided to work in this space because I was abused as a child. And I, as, and when I had my first child, I wanted to become the abuser. And I did a TED Talk, if anybody wants to go find that. And the process of moving from wanting to abuse to deciding to not abuse, to never abusing, to deciding to teach about not abusing was a long, painful journey. So my my firstborn is 31 years, so it is at least 31 years old. And when I started the work in 2008-ish, I started going into shelters and coaching with women at the shelter. That has since morphed into, as you know, the foundation, Indrani's Light Foundation. And it has also morphed 
out of coaching the clients at the shelter to my whole team and myself teaching classes on life skills to the caregiving sector of the shelter. And the caregiving sector are all the frontline workers, the administration, people who answer the phone, the people who take care of the, the kids who come to shelter. That whole sector has been ignored. Mm -hmm. And we are beginning to realize if we can help those people to create peaceful and sustainable, happy home lives for themselves, then we could maybe affect burnout and compassion fatigue, and they could show up at work and be really, really, you know, many, many more times more effective. Well, and that's uh, that's a really powerful example of how you've taken it beyond the obvious of, of just reaching out to the women in shelters and really looked at how what is their experience and how can you support the people who are so strongly influencing their experience in a shelter environment. Yeah, because one of the things we know from coaching is we all have blind spots. So if as if I'm a let's say I'm one of the people answering the phones and doing intake at the desk at the shelter. And if I myself am being beaten at home, but I won't look at it or want to fix it, then when a woman is standing in front of me saying, you know, my husband beat me this morning, I might be thinking, well, what's your problem, you wimp? I'm beaten every day. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And we don't want that. Well, and, and this problem is one that extends far beyond, you know, the way you just described as people compartmentalizing things. This this problem worldwide is a huge one. And uh, you, you were telling me a story before we uh, we came on the podcast about your, you were recently at the World Economic Summit in Davos, Switzerland. Could you share that? And just to give yes. people a sense of that? Yeah, so um, let me back up from there a little bit. When I was invited to go, my husband invited me. I actually thought, I don't belong there. What am I going to be doing there? I, I don't have anything to do with, uh, how, how am I going to help affect any change? And then the answer came so sweetly to me as I got there and realized there were very few women on the floor and there was no clear specific track on women and violence and how it affects the world. So one of the things that um, World Economic Forum attendees have to do is we have to travel from place to place on World Economic Forum shuttle buses. And those buses have seats that face each other. So you're actually looking at other people's faces. And so what I started to do was every time I met someone who introduced themselves as a CEO or a CFO or a COO or an executive vice president or the chief of staff too, I said something like, would you be curious about a number that affects the world um, economically? And yeah, of course, you know, they say yes, just to be polite. And then I say, <laughs> well, globally, the world loses $9.1 trillion because of violence to women and, and girls. And I get this look of, what? 
And then I might say, you know, it, you know, when that woman closes the door, she brings all of those effects to her work. Her productivity is less. Um, she has to go to the doctor a lot more. Her department suffers. The manager of that department suffers. It affects your bottom line. All of those bottom lines affect the GDP, and all the GDPs add up together, and we get $9.1 trillion of loss. And I see some curiosity, and I say, would you like that, my card? And they always take it. Whether they reach, reach out to me or not is not important. The important thing is that they reach out to somebody to find out what are we doing about this? How can we affect this? And, and I can only hope for the best. Well, and with that level of that, with that scope of a world problem, one of the possible reactions that you and others could have with whatever issue they're dealing with is how can I possibly make a difference in all of that? And you, you went from being abused as a child and wanting to abuse, which thank you for sharing that. It's, uh, it's a vulnerable thing to share with us. How, how do you move from that to, yes, I can, I can do something in this, in to help these women to and girls to do something about this problem. How were you able to bring yourself into a place of action around that? I that was hard at first. How can how can I affect any of this? But as I as the children were growing and as I was seeing that. If I, if I was able to embody peace and calm and quiet and thoughtfulness, how much easier my own house flowed. The current in my house was sweet and peaceful and everyone was floating on this river. Not that we didn't have challenge. Of course we have challenge. But um, I realized that it was, it was so crucial for me to try to figure out what else to do. And so I first had a dream of trying to, to reach children, to say, you know, if you're being abused, it's not your fault and blah, blah, blah. But I'm not a PhD in anything. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a, I don't even have a master's in psychology. I'm a coach. So nobody was going to give me a reason um, a reason to, to reach their children. And so I had to figure out a way to reach the children through the moms and the moms that put their, her hand up and actually went into a shelter to get help. That was where I could start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's important for people to to reach out and ask for help. And to, to ask for help, but it, it, so when I went to shelters, we were there in these small groups and the coaching was very intimate and there was help and then there were, there were actions that they could take when they went home. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a lecture. It wasn't a, Somebody standing in a, they weren't taking a class on self-esteem. We were talking about individual 
problems that happened last week and were going to happen again next week and the week after that and the week after that. And what small step could we take to change that? Ursula, may I tell you another little story? Yeah, about please, that? please. Okay. So the very first time I went to a shelter, there was a young woman there who had gotten married maybe six, eight months before. She had come from India. She was very bright. She had a lot of education. She, was she married a man who was born here. He was Indian, but chose to marry a woman from, from India. Brought her here. She started living with his parents. And by the time she got to me, she had been in the shelter for a little bit. And she, he, would, he was beating her and screaming at her. The mother was beating her, mm. screaming at her, treating her very badly. She said she didn't grow up like this. She didn't know that coming to America, that this is what it would mean. Um, so I said to her, what do you think is going to happen this week? And she said, well, my mother's gone, mother-in-law is going to make me make a lot of tea and she won't even drink the tea. And I said, well, how does she ask you to make tea? And she said, well, she doesn't even ask anymore. She just snaps her fingers, snap. And I know it's, it, I better make the tea. And so I'll make the tea and then she leave the tea and then it gets cold. And she says, this girl cannot even make proper tea hmm. after she has let the tea get cold. And I said, okay, so here's what I'd like for you to do. The next time you hear the snap and you hear the, and, and the energy in you wants to jump out of your skin to make the tea, can you take three breaths? Oh, I could see that she couldn't take not even one breath. Her, her whole throat was constricted. And so we started to role play. I was the mother-in-law and she was herself. And I would go in and out of role and remind her to breathe. So we, we finally settled on, okay, one breath. When she snaps at you to make tea, take one breath and then get up and make the tea. And I said, now remember, I don't want you to be rude. I don't want you to make more trouble for yourself. Just take one breath. You have to breathe anyway. Make it a longer breath. And she said, okay. So we met the following week and everyone was looking at her. Well, what happened? She said... I'm not making any tea. Well, Ursula, I wow. almost dropped dead. I said, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> that, that's not what we agreed to. And now I'm thinking she got beaten more. And, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is all my fault. And I said, tell us what happened. She said, well, I took one breath. Then I took two breaths. Then I took three breaths. Then I took 10 breaths. And then she said, this girl is useless. I'm not asking you to make tea anymore. And so I stopped <laughs> making tea. <laughs> well, that's one way to, to end the, put a stop to the process or break the pattern. Yeah. Um, <laughs> crazy, right? <laughs> well, that's, it, it just goes to show that, that, that helping her just take that tiny little step really made a huge difference within her. So she was able to kind of take it further. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that I've been talking with people around this topic of impact of making a positive contribution is that I feel that it's so grounded in the values that they hold. And 
you've been touching on various things in our conversation so far, but just to make it explicit, what are the things that are at the the root of uh, what you hold dear that you bring into the foundation and the work that you do? What what do you value the most? What kinds of kinds of ways do your beliefs and values come into your work? The the value that I stand on every single day is justice and equality. So if I am equal to to you, you don't have the right to come and slap me or punch me or scream at me or take my salary away from me. If I if if it's if we live in a just family, then whatever is asked of me as a girl is also asked of my brother. One of the ways that we get people to begin to understand gender norms is when I teach globally, I start with, uh, I put a big post-it note on the wall and I say, okay, fill in the sentence, a good girl or a good daughter is or does. And then on the other side of the room, I do the same thing, a good son or a good, um, a good son or a good brother is or does. And I then, then they write their, their answers on little post-it notes and we stick it under the big sign. And then I take the signs and I flip it. So now everything they wrote that a good girl does, now it applies to boys. And let me tell you, they don't like that. <laughs> it's yeah, a, so, yeah. It's a real shift for people to look at things in that way when they're used to this uh, disparity. Yeah, and, and now we begin to ask. Now it's, why does this affect you so much? I don't, I don't want to change their mind. I just want them to understand how entrenched the thinking was. Mm-hmm. And then... If we're lucky, there'll be some people in the room who'll say, oh, yeah, I treat my daughter the same way as I treat my son. And if it's coming from from somebody in the class, then those people can say, oh, can you tell me more about that? So they don't have to talk to me about it. But here, one of their peers is saying, my son and my daughter are treated equally in my home. What do you think these kinds of conversations, how do they... How do they impact in the larger world? Or do, you, or do you keep your focus, do you like to keep your focus more on small change with individuals? How do you look at it? Well, uh, Ursula, I know that you know that I've spoken at the UN and I've spoken at conferences like Women Deliver, which is the largest conference on women and girls, and it happens every three years. So I use my voice with larger audiences like that But I always, always say the change that we need to see happen is only going to happen if everybody goes home today and says, I am going to change everything or a few things or half a thing in my little corner of the world. Mm -hmm. And if we all do that, then if I change stuff in my house and my neighbor does it and her neighbor does it, then the street is changed, then the village is changed, then the city is changed, then the country, then the world. And But the only way to do it is 
is one house at a time. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I, I believe that we need laws, but the law doesn't stop somebody from beating up people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Minds have to be changed, not just laws. And and behavior change is, is the hardest thing. You know, that's why marketers get paid so much money and marketing is so expensive because Every time someone wants us to to make a different behavior, they have to spend lots of time in telling us why we need to do it. Well, as a as a social worker, I'm not a social worker, I'm a coach, but working in the in the social justice space, the people uh, who work in this space, we have very little time with people. We have to we have to try to get them to see the big picture in one or two or three or four visits. We don't get to, you know, come on their TV and we're not on their radio space and we don't talk to them every day. We are, we have to be really targeted with what we're trying to get them to understand and then hope that when they start implementing it and they have questions that they'll reach out Mm -hmm. and ask, but there is not enough money for every single person in this space to keep going back to those houses um, where we need to see impact and change. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it brings me to thinking about, well, when you have a foundation like yours, you're working with other people within the foundation. What do you feel is, is, a good use of your energy and how has that evolved is I'm assuming that you started, well, you tell, you tell us, uh, I'm assuming you started with you alone, you doing everything. Yeah. And now, right. exactly. yes. yeah. And now you have right. people helping you. How, how did, how did your clarity around where you can have the most impact within that evolve? And what is that right now? That was a that was a nice long trajectory. I because I created so so let's let's put it this way. The stuff that we're doing now, nobody else was doing it that we just said, oh, we're gonna take a piece of your model and a piece of that other, and then we're gonna make a new model. We did all of this ourselves. So uh, first teaching in shelters figuring out what I was teaching. I started to take notes and then we, you know, a friend of mine helped me write the curriculum. All the stuff is based on on research, positive psychology research, social science research. And me thinking at first, oh, because this stuff, the idea for the classes came out of my head, I'm the only one that could teach it. That was there for quite a while. I didn't know if anybody else could teach it. Then I had a thought, oh boy, I long to train 10,000 trainers to teach this in the world, but I didn't know how to train people. And nobody was banging on the door to say, hey, we want to do this. Then I met a wonderful, uh, actually, she had been my coach, my executive coach for a while. Her name was Andrea Lee. And Andrea helped me to understand that the only way to grow the mission was to start giving up some of the control that I thought I needed. Mm-hmm. So we, Andrea helped me to train a bunch of people in Austin. 
about five, six years ago. And from those people in Austin, two of the people who took the class are now leading the foundation. Oh, that's great. So Amy Deer, who's now Amy Jaffe, she's the head trainer and she does, she along with our operations person, Jeremy Miller, they do, I mean, I, I don't even think they need me anymore. I feel kind of, <laughs> I feel kind of useless sometimes. <laughs> They're doing all of the domestic training and I'm doing the global training. Right. Well, and what a wonderful evolution. I mean, the way you're speaking about Amy and Jeremy is clearly you have a lot of confidence in them and that they're true to the mission and that they, they're extremely capable in doing what needs to be done. You know, if I want something, let's say I'm going to make a very simple thing. If I want the color on the website to be purple and Jeremy and Amy and the executive assistant, Stacy, who keeps, it's the glue, she keeps us all together. If they come back and say, Indrani, this needs to be pink, I'm going to say, go with it. <laughs> I am not going to fight for purple because they know and understand they're in the weeds of the work every day more than I. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm not, if, I ha, if I'm so invested in purple, something's wrong with me. <laughs> well, and, and you, I mean, you make a really good point in working with your coach, Andrea, that um, in order for the mission to grow, and this is true of any organization, in order for things to grow, you need to release some control and allow other people to be involved and, and bring what they can bring to the organization too. A hundred percent of what they can bring, not, yeah. well, I wonder if Indrani's going to like this. It doesn't matter if I like it. Does it work? Is it the right thing to do? Then my liking it has nothing to do with anything. How, how do you deal with those situations when you're feeling that control or, or I guess maybe in the past that you felt releasing control, was it challenging? Or once you realized that it was a sudden revelation and you were able to release control, how was that process for you? Or was there one? It I had tried to release some control to some people before, and they were the wrong people, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of hurt, a lot of hurt, and it took me a lot, a long time to recover from the hurt. So then I would talk to my family, and I'd say things like, well, you know, maybe I'm biting off too much, maybe this is not what I should be doing, maybe this is you know, I'm not qualified. And, and I needed to have that little pity party for a while. And my husband would always say to me, this is your baby. You decide where it should go and find the people who can help you along that path. And he would say, some people are going to be able to help for five years. Some people for 15 years. But if you try to make the five-year person a 15-year person, you're going to be in trouble. And so I had to realize that, okay, if, if they needed to leave or if the mission wasn't what they thought, then we had to be able to part ways as human beings in love and compassion, wishing, wishing each other the best 
And that really gave me a lot of permission to to take chances. And then if it didn't work, to say, okay, it didn't work. Let's hope that we each find a thing that works. And, and so that was really helpful. And I have to say, the hurt was helpful too, because if those people had initially worked out, I wouldn't have learned as much about myself and about trying to create an organization as I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what you said about don't make the five-year person the 15-year person. I, yeah. I know it's so it's so tempting to want to hang on to someone where your experience has been good, even though you both see that they need to be elsewhere for whatever reason. And it's, it's really hard to let them go. And you know, here, here is the human part of me. The human part of me says, well, if I see that you need to be elsewhere, it's okay. But if you see that you need to be (laughs) elsewhere, then that's a big problem. It's true. (laughs) I've been in that boat. I understand. Come on. (laughs) No, 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 no. You need to be here. (laughs) Wait a minute. minute. I'm not on board yet. (laughs) Well, in the, in the course of this work that you're doing and the, the subject matter that you deal with on an ongoing basis in the training that you're doing and in even the conversations you're having with other people that are, are working with people directly, there's, there's such, um, an opportunity to kind of carry all of that with you and eventually it just gets to be too much and how do you how do you lay that down how do you release the stories that you hear how do you take care of yourself in a way that you can continue with the work that you're doing the impact that you have the i i must be honest the first few years or maybe first year I would bring home the stories and I would cry. I would just be a a wreck, an emotional wreck. And I quickly realized that if I wanted, if I was inviting somebody to tell me their story, how dare I not be strong and contained and grounded? Why was I pretending that that story was happening to me? Hmm. All I had to do was listen. I could listen. They had to live it. And so I started to focus more on self-care. Actually, there is the classes that we teach in the workshops that we teach. There's a whole component on self-care. And so I would I started practicing more the self-care that I was, you know, talking about. And now. When I am going on a trip, for instance, I'm leaving on Saturday for Trinidad for 10 days. I'll be teaching there and I'll be doing some other work with some other stakeholders. I invest a lot in self-care. So this weekend, I had a a whole weekend of restorative yoga, two and a half days of restorative yoga. (laughs) That is a gift that I could give to myself. Are there other things that you do regularly that helps support the work that you're doing and your own sense of self and containment? Yes, my gratitude practice is very strong. It's very significant in my life. And I write in my gratitude journal 
every single night before I go to bed. Um, my gratitude journals are very small. They are the size of notebooks and they are numbered one through 12. So when I travel, I just take that number with me. I'm traveling on Saturday, so I'll take number two for February with me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I will lose a notebook, but I haven't lost the whole year. Ah, what a good idea. Yeah, and um, I keep them all in the same place in the study. I go back and I look at them from time to time. So if I look back seven years ago and I open any random page, I'm immediately transported to that day and the goodness of that day. And I really like that. I really like that. It is really amazing to go back and read uh, previous gratitude journals. I do the same thing. And it's, uh, yeah, very powerful. Brings you back to the moment. I have this... Um, this dream of taking all the journals and then just making a book, you know, having somebody transcribe all of them, the day and the year. And that's the book, nothing else. It's just a life of gratitude. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's great. <laughs> I think you should do that. That's a great idea. What a wonderful gift and, and leave space for them to add their own. That could be. A yeah. Great... Wouldn't that be something? Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. It's a great idea. Well, in in doing this gratitude work, I uh, one of the things that I have found myself, and and I'd love to hear your experience, but it's transformative in a way that I often don't expect. It takes an obstacle or a problem and it turns it into something different. And it may not be this magical immediate. I see an opportunity transformation, but it does shift my perspective. What, what's been your experience when you're faced with an obstacle? These days, I immediately ask myself, where's the lesson here? You know, I don't think a lot of people will believe me, but I hardly see a thing that stops me in my tracks anymore. Mm. Not that I'm not afraid, not that I'm not scared, but I ask, what action can I take to mitigate first the fear and the pain? And then what do I do to move forward in a, in a positive way? Can you give us an example of a, an experience that were you able to do that? If you don't mind sharing. And I actually, it just happened yesterday, right? So with this new administration, um, people who are, a green card holders, legal residents of the United States, they were stopped at the border when they were trying to get back home. I never thought in my wildest dreams that that could happen because I was a green card holder for many, many years. And so I immediately got curious about my naturalization. What does that mean? What are my rights as a naturalized citizen? So I started to read about my rights and I was all, I'm already more informed than I was just 48 hours ago. I can be deported under certain circumstances. I have to know what they are and I have to know what I'm going to do if those things happen. Mm. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to speak or be active or call something out if it needs to be called out. What it does mean for me now is I am no longer sleeping through my naturalization, which I was very happy to do. Hmm. 
That's a great way of putting it, no longer sleeping through. And that is a temptation when something happens that feels really fearful or comes up and it, it feels overwhelming is to just kind of cocoon in. And instead, you've turned this into an opportunity to learn and know more. And I put it on Facebook that other naturalized people should look and, and decide what they want to do. And some people were very angry. One woman said, you know, I don't want, I never want to live in fear. Well, you know what? I am living in fear, hmm. but I'm not stuck in it. Just because I feel fear doesn't mean I'm stuck in the mud. I think people, you know, who survived the Holocaust, they lived in fear every day, mm -hmm. but they still found courage to survive that one extra day. Yeah, it's really about the courage to move through it rather than just being determined to not feel any fear. It's we're we're humans having we're having this human experience and that is part of it. And Brene Brown tells us if we try to numb any one emotion, hmm. we numb them all. Right. Yeah. So let me feel my fear, let me feel my joy, let me feel my hope, and let me understand that all of those emotions will come together to give me a hint, a whisper of a next step. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's what a great way to put that. I, it, it brings me to ask you if, if you were to offer advice or share an insight about um, with another organizational leader or a, a business owner, how can how can I have impact? How can I positively affect things? What would you say to them? I mean, that was just a great piece of advice, but is there is there one thing that kind of pops into your mind that you would love people to know? Yes, I really want, I really would love it if people would be able to to, to identify people in their lives that they love and admire and turn that same intensity onto themselves. Hmm. So if you can love and admire yourself, and not in a narcissistic way, but in a way that, that you love and admire Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa, if you can bring as much admiration and open-eyed joy to yourself, then you could say, okay, so if I stood in this joy for life and joy for, for positive change, now let me look around me, let me look around my business to see what small thing could I do to affect a change. So Ursula, I was, um, I'm partnering with a big organization in uh, Washington, D.C., called Population Services International. They had not been doing work in gender violence until I started partnering with them. And then they, they did a whole internal sensitization of their staff, their global staff. And they have offices in 69 countries. Wow. And in DC, they did a very simple thing. They put on the doors of the women's restroom um, the questions that women have to ask themselves if they were being abused. So it was a simple, a simple way of saying, are you safe at home? Mm -hmm. Every employer can do that, right? Mm -hmm. You put that in the women's restroom. Yeah. 
Well, and I, I love what you just said about what small thing can I do? It really speaks to how we all matter. There's something that I keep saying to people recently, and when I give talks or I'm talking to people, I just say, you matter, and what you do matters. And that's true for each and every one of us. And, I, you know, when we say it, I wish we would stop. I don't always remember to, to stop and say, do you believe me? Mm -hmm. Do you believe that you matter? And if you truly believed it, what might you do differently? <laughs> what a great question. Yeah. I, I know that there was a time when I didn't believe that I mattered. And so if I didn't matter, nothing that I did had any consequence, whether it was good or bad. Yeah. So I had permission to be bad. I had permission to be nasty. I had permission to be mean. Because if the goodness didn't matter, why was the badness mattering? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But when I mattered, I do not have permission to be mean. Hmm. Yeah. Well, what a great way to to um, bring this interview to a close of do you believe that you matter? And if you believe it, what would you do differently? Those are yeah. wonderful <laughs> questions that you pose. So thank you. I, I think that's something we can uh, really leave with people to consider for themselves. I, I want to thank you so much, Andrani, for being here and for sharing your own experiences and bringing that peace and calm and thoughtfulness that you that you really want to bring uh, to people as a way to change behavior, to look at how we can shift things in our own immediate experience. So thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. Ursula, thank you so much for inviting me and have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the day and happy new year. <laughs> thank you. And uh, I so appreciate the work you do in the world. Okay, bye. So join us for more podcasts on impact. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast channel on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll be notified as soon as new podcasts are available. Thank you to everyone listening for being here. Until that time, keep positive flow of energy going in your business so you can have your own impact. Join our community of entrepreneurs like you by entering your name and email at workalchemy 